If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome, listeners, back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Good. Today's sponsor is Planes. Aren't they great? I think those Wright brothers are really onto something. <laughs> I think it's going to really take off. Oh, no. You don't get so... to make fun of my song puns anymore. <laughs> you have lost that privilege. Also, planes are mostly associated with travel and thus are terrible and the worst. So first, we are going to talk about the games we played this week, then the news and why it doesn't matter, and then our feature game of the week, which is Rift Force. Not just any force, Mark. Rift Force. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, I got to play Ark Nova again. This is the thing that's been buzzing around since the end of 2021. It is this thing that's been toted as sort of... Uh, terraforming Mars-ish because there are symbols on cards that you play that don't have a lot of symbols and they supply you symbols that allow you play more cards and I believe this is why it's been given this sort of comparison but the reason I, I I'm sort of like I'm really looking forward to it playing it in real life this both plays have been on tabletop simulator and it is a card, essentially very heavy card game. So holding those cards in your hand and not like trying to hit alt every time and cycle through them. And I think it's going to just give a lot more to the game playing in, in person. So anyway, that being said, it's a very tight game. You have a very small hand size. There are a lot of cards that you need to play. There, There is the cycling action that we like from uh, New Civilization, where your actions cycle to the top. The more the closer they are to the top, the more powerful they are. You're playing down animals, and all of these animals have to be in some sort of enclosure. So you're 
your playing cart, you're spending, you know, resources to put out these enclosures, you're, you're trying to optimize your turns, you're, you're getting participation with other countries to import their animals, I guess. And, and all of these things you're trying to do has this very unique scoring system, which I talked about before, where, uh, there's one sort of scoring track and the two scoring markers are meeting somewhere in the middle and that will trigger the end of the game. And then you have that one turn that hopefully you're ready for, and then you're trying to score a bunch of more points to make the divide between them great, and that is going to be your score. And I think it, it's it's good. I don't think it's, you know, the super greatest, but I think it's very tight game, like lots of new things. I like new, different things, and this thing brings new, different things. And that's Arc Nova. Does it bring new, different things, or does it just bring together a number of things that we've seen before in a new combination? Well, the scoring system is, I know we've, we, there was a game that we're just playing that has almost the identical scoring system, but the fact that it triggers the end of the game and then you have like single turn to score points is, okay. is a little unique. And the, and the fact that both the scoring mechanisms are totally different, like, uh, the one scoring track, every point is three points of the other track, give or take, and uh, lots of different things. There's a certain segment of the audience which let's call it the IGA segment of the audience. You know, we're both members of the IGA jury, the International Gamers Awards, and there's a fair amount of overlap in our tastes. But it is definitely the case that what you and I might dismiss as a somewhat pedestrian generic Euro might set their world on fire. And that's fine. It's just a a slightly different level of appreciation of certain kinds of games. And that segment of the audience, what I would call the IGA segment of the audience, is all over Arc Nova. And they have been directly and indirectly trying to get people like me excited about Arc Nova. So far, they have failed. And indeed, many of your comments about Arc Nova may lead me to believe that I won't necessarily enjoy it too much either. Because especially when you start with, it's kind of like Terraforming Mars. I'm like, oh, you mean so you're already starting off with an inferior no. version of... No, 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 look, look, look. In the sense that it's a card-driven tableau builder, right? And True. Card-driven... I just want to make sure, very clear, I never said it was like Terraforming Mars. I said other people have right. compared it to Terraforming Mars. Word on the street is, I heard on the playground, my mom might have mentioned... Yeah, yeah, yeah I understand what it is, Walker. Wink, Someone wink, passed me a note. Absolutely. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, look, card-based tableau builders are a dime a dozen. We've commented about this for years. When there's already Race for the Galaxy, 51st State Master Set, a whole bunch of other ones that are nice and compact and interesting and cutthroat and provide a lot of tough decisions. I'm not necessarily in the market for a two-hour-long min-max kind of experience. I will happily give Arc Nova a try. And indeed, your most recent explanation, the one you just gave now, leads me to believe that it might be good for a laugh or two. But... I confess of the things that you've been playing that have been heavily hyped up over the past few weeks, Arc Nova is definitely at the bottom of my list in terms of things I want to try. This is designed by Mathis Wiggy and put out by Capstone Games. I could play Agricola Revised Edition on Board Game Arena. This was online with Huey and Louie, and I was in the mood to just make a nice little farm while at the same time desperately scrabbling against the depredations of my opponents and cursing my own stupidity and or misfortune, which mostly amount to the same thing. This is one of those instances where I do the thing that I always see other players do, 
and seldom do myself. I, I have many, many failings when it comes to board games, but seldom is it the case that I'm given a hand of cards and I start expecting the cards to magically manifest for me. And as a result, I hew to the cards that I've given rather than the other way around. You should make your cards work for your strategy, not make your strategy work for your cards. And I got a whole bunch of cards that basically said, get to a two-room stone house real quick, and then something, something points. So I'm like, okay, sounds great. Neglecting to realize that, number one, again, don't let your cards dictate what you're going to do in your strategy, even in a game like Agricola. And number two... You can only renovate starting in round two, which may come in turn five. It may come in turn seven. Who's to say? This time it came in turn seven. And as a consequence, I was sitting there saying, okay, okay, okay. Everything's going to fall together in round seven. Well, of course, everything, by everything, I mean, eventually I get to the stone house and then I get to start playing cards and then the cards start paying off kind of, sort of, but really they should have been paying off several rounds ago. Anyway, so I dug my own grave I nonetheless had a great time because, as I keep saying about Agricola, the same thing about A Feast for Odin. You get a sense of ownership at the end of the game, even if you've done very poorly. You do get to look at your board. You even get to look at your minor improvements and your professions. And there is a sense of variety there. There is a sense of accomplishment, even if you end up doing terribly. This is probably the worst game of Agricola in terms of score that I've played in many years. Because, again, I, I normally don't fall into those kinds of foibles. I, lots of other foibles I fall into, absolutely, just that one in particular. I nonetheless thoroughly enjoyed myself. I've never had a bad game of Agricola in terms of my own enjoyment. I've had tons of bad games in terms of, well, you know, the family didn't really eat very well, and or I had to take on a lot of begging, and or my grand plans never manifested. And several of those things happened during my recent game, but I still thoroughly enjoy the demanding nature of the economy. You really do feel like it's not that the game is fighting you. It's just that you have these high hurdles to cross. And so whenever you're able to look at what you're able to accomplish, there is that sense of ownership. There is that sense of accomplishment. And so that is one of the reasons why I keep turning back to Agricola and I bounce off of a lot of even very similar games even when it is the case that they're from the same designer. This is the classic talk that we've had back and forth for years over different kinds of Uwe Rosenberg worker placement games, but I think Agricola really has stood the test of time. It is still my favorite of the Uwe Rosenberg worker placement games, despite the fact that I will happily play other ones. I, As far as the revised edition specifically, eh, I mean, it's okay. Like, they rebalance the cards. That's all well and good. The new iconography, I could take or leave. Eh, I, largely, I felt it was an unnecessary tweak the only thing that I really don't like is that there's not a whole heck of a lot of cards available for the two-player and single-player version of Agricola. This time we played with three, so that wasn't really much of an issue. But I will say, in the Board Game Arena implementation, they do a number of very clever things. One of them is they have a variety of different ways to distribute the cards. There's the standard just deal seven of each. There's the deal ten, keep seven. They even let you do the draft. There's also several of the expansions implemented in Board Game Arena, so you can select from different card sets. So in terms of base game retail, in the meat space, as you would call it, I would be very careful about getting the revised edition rather than the previous printing from the aughts. But if you're going to be playing on Board Game Arena, all's good. So, great time with Agricola, revised edition, as per usual. Uwe Rosenberg, Lookout Games, published in 2016. Yeah, we talked about it before, games that tell a story, and I think Agricola is one of the ones that amplify that to the maximum. You look down at your tableau at the end of the game, and it just and it sings to you, like it tells you what happened over the last few years with the little village that you created. Fantastic. Well put, Walker. 
I got to play Witchstone, Mark. We had a we had our first in two years all day gaming day. Super fun. I only showed up for one quick game and and I was surprised at how quick it was. It was Witchstone. This is by Hutch and RRN Games. It's an, a Reiner Knizia uh, design and teaching it and playing it like just over an hour. So much game it packed in that one hour. You're, you're playing down tile, tiles. You're creating combos. You're doing some, you know, root building. You're doing all sorts of little mini games. And for what you get out of that one hour, I think it's a fantastic experience. Glad you got to get back to it. That is Witchstone. I got to play Republic of Virtue. This is the freebie offered from this year's Hollandspiel, Hollandays sale. This is very much in the same vein as the previous two-player kind of sort of like a PAX game that Amabel Holland designed, specifically Reign of Witches. I talked about that a few weeks ago. Republic of Virtue is instead about the French Revolution, and I love me some French Revolution. I am much more enthusiastic about that than the theming of Reign of Witches, specifically a presidential election during the Quasi-War. And in Republic of Virtue, I find the framing to be downright brilliant, because this is where a lot of games about the French Revolution fail. In particular, one of my early great disappointments in Eurogaming was Liberté by Martin Wallace, because the framing in Liberté is, you're some kind of power broker during the French Revolution trying to involve yourself in the radicals and the royalists, as well as the moderates, trying to get power in France as a consequence of a light. It made no sense. It was utterly incoherent, and it's one of the many reasons why I bounced off of Liberté hard. Republic of Virtue is similar, but the framing is slightly different. You're not a power broker trying to win elections. You're someone trying to survive the terror. That's your only goal. You want to get out alive. In the process... You cut deals with a variety of different radicals with very, very incommensurate political ideals. But you're not trying to cobble together a political coalition. You're not trying to gain power. You're just trying to get out with your head intact. And as a consequence, you also have some of that same dynamic from Reign of Witches, whereby it is conceivable for neither of you to win and your both of your losses to be driven by the fact that you were sniping at each other. As opposed to Reign of Witches, though, in Republic of Virtue, it's possible for both sides to win. You can both escape the terror intact. It is incredibly simple, a very, very small card game. I wish I could see Amabel Holland take this approach into a slightly longer, meatier, slightly more deterministic game. Now, this is probably a pipe dream. I don't think she'd ever be inclined to do this, in part because her attitude towards chaos and her attitude towards historical verisimilitude I don't think will ever produce the game that I want from her. Uh, which is fine. She's an incredibly iconoclastic designer in a number of ways. And the freebies from the, the sales are very much indicative of this. You get this weird little 20-card thing that's very redolent of the revolution. I, you know, I may want it to be something that it's not, namely like a 45 to 90 minute game that maybe could tolerate multiplayer, maybe would be a little bit more in depth, but that's wanting it to be something that it's not. What you have in Republic of Virtue is something that's like 15 to 30 minutes pretty random all told, but nonetheless a fair amount of historical detail and a little bit of texture, wild swings as a result of a whole bunch of people being purged and sent to the guillotine, such as the way of things. But I'm a huge fan of the time period, and I really like Amabel Holland exploring this design space. She, she makes these little games that are kind of like experiments, and it's really good to see her push the envelope in a number of ways. Now, again, would I be very, very curious if I ever heard that she designed a, a more prolonged, protracted, in-depth, PAX-like tableau builder game? Absolutely. 
Do I think that Republic of Virtue would necessarily serve as the bones for that? Probably not. So again, I'm probably asking for something that I shouldn't be asking for. But as somebody who's a huge fan of both of Amabel Holland and of the French Revolution, Republic of Virtue was more or less exactly what I wanted out of it. I got to side, uh, side with Jean-Jacques Danton. What else do you want? What else could you possibly want out of a game? We had both in the same tableau, Walker, in the same market tableau. We had both David and the death of Marat. Because, Jean, as everyone knows, the famous painting... The Death of Marat, which depicts the assassination of Jean-Paul Marat, Walker's nodding because he knows exactly what I'm talking about, was painted by David. Yeah, there you go. Great game. Obviously, that makes it a great game. No other game has done that for me recently. 10 out of 10. Anyway, I'm exaggerating. Big fan, I don't know if this is going to start commanding the ridiculous prices on the secondary market that Reign of Witches did, because again, this was nominally only distributed as a freebie for people who bought two or more games during the Hollenspiel sale of 2021, but I thoroughly enjoyed Republic of Virtue, even though, again, sometimes I wish it was something that it is not. Designed by Abimel Holland and published by Hollenspiel in 2021. Mark, I got to play Pulsar 2849 again. You and I played it once quite a while ago. This is a Vladimir Suchi design of underwater cities and uh, Praga kaput Rigny. No, no, no. This, this is not is the also... game about Prague or underwater cities, Walker. You're getting confused. The one with underwater cities is called Underwater Cities, and the one about Prague is called Prague. Gotcha. Gotcha. This is the one about pulsars. So yes, lots of pulsars, lots of spinning thing gyrodynes we're spinning them gotta spin in those the gyrodynes oh yeah I, I don't i don't know how this the science works about spinning <laughs> gyrodynes in pulsars you know it, you know it abstracts that away you know thank god because the science there is absolute really when you think about it i am 100 percent sure that the science checks out you can trust me i'm a philosopher all right talking about comparing games to other games this is compared to castles of burgundy quite a lot because it follows uh, the fundamental rule of you're having two dice and you're spending those two dice on actions. And this is, happens every turn. And it's got, and I like this sort of, you know, absolute action thing. You have two actions you're going to do with your two dice and then you have a red action that you can do. And there's all sorts of ways to get this red die action, but you can only ever do one. Absolute rules. None of this, well, I somehow tweaked out a way to get six, you know, red die actions this turn. No, none of that. But the things that you can do with these actions are so much more than Castles of Moderna. You're doing text, you're, you're moving through the galaxy, you're spinning gyrodynes, you're, you're uh, getting modifiers to your dice, you're making, uh, what are they, uh, the Transmitters. You're putting out transmitters, you're putting out transmitters, you're doing all of these things, lots of interesting things, lots of... Decision, decision spaces where you're like the third turn in, you're saying, well, I was supposed to get gyrodyne, so they give you points every turn. I, maybe I should have got those spinning in, in the first turn. And then your fourth turn, you still haven't done it. And then the fifth turn, you're like, okay, well, I've <laughs> failed. <laughs> and there's and there's multiple things going on in the galaxy. You're Like I said, where you're claiming pulsars, you're, you're claiming planets. There's different rules for moving through systems or ending your turn in systems. There's Vladimir Suchi point explosions everywhere as per usual. But it's, it's not as bad as his other games. It's all fairly, you know, it's locked down on the board. It's, you know what I mean? It's not... There's not much end game scoring. It's fairly locked down. You have your, you're moving through the planets and there's the end game scoring tiles. And there's a little bit more than that, but other than, unlike the other games where there's, you know, one or two points all over the place, this is a little more centralized feeling anyway. 
Huh. That's weird because usually that's normally my critique of a lot of contemporary era games. The, 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 the scoring is rather all over the place. The reason why I like Pulsar 2849 more than the other Vladimir Suki designs is because of the dice drafting. I really like how the dice drafting works, how you're constantly paying an opportunity cost for getting good dice and you're getting a benefit from bad dice. And that in turn, those benefits and detriments are very, very uh, heavy on player interaction because turn order matters a lot and engineering cubes matter a lot, and if you're taking a good die, you're losing something in terms of either of those. And that tension is what I think really gives it a, a slightly edge. When you compare it to something like Praga Caput Regni, again, something I was happy to play a couple of times, but then I got a little bit tired. The action selection in Praga Caput Regni, I mean, it's there, and it works, but it's not particularly exciting. You pay a couple bucks or something to take a different action, whatever. You can't just give up on it in Pulsar, right? You can't just take keep getting good dice and say, well, I'm not going to compete for it because you go too low on the chart that you're going to start getting penalties. And I thought that was a great addition as well. Absolutely. I mean, I do generally tend to like science fiction as a theme as well. I mean, if it's a historical theme that sings to me, I will absolutely make exceptions. Uh, so when compared to, say, Praga Caput Regni, I confess, past the, the charming little bit about needing eggs to build a bridge and or walls, uh, that you know, the the historical theming doesn't do a lot for me. That's not to say I'd, I'm not interested in Prague in the the 14th century. It's more that it's not particularly well historically themed, uh, and as especially if you compare it to Underwater Cities, Underwater Cities, the theming of which never really seemed to make sense to me. This is a classic classic example of what Chris Farrell says. Like, look, this is the science fiction premises. We're going to do something really hard for no discernible reason. It's like, why are we building these cities underwater? I get something, something climate change. I guess maybe I don't know. Whatever. Anyhow, it does. But both both those games, they have a mechanism that makes you feel good while you're doing it. So like in Praga, it, it's the physical part of it for me. It's the turning of the giant dials. It's the turning of all the Fair dials enough. on your board. It's it's that in, in underwater cities, it's, it's being able to match up your actions every time you have this fairly limited hand of cards and you're trying to match up the color of your cards with the color of your actions and being able to figure out that puzzle is a, is a good feeling like regardless of what how it all washes out just that particular you know going through those actions is is nice for me you make a very strong point you're right they have virtues I still, nonetheless, when I play a Vladimir Suki game, maybe I'm doing too much of a job of just blanching the differences. You're very right to point out these sometimes very tactile, sometimes very psychologically prevalent differences. Uh, for me, they all kind of blanch into a sameness of a whole bunch of clever stuff going on uh, that seldom feels particularly memorable in and of itself. And so the reason why I keep gravitating towards Pulsar 2849 is precisely because of the increased player interaction and the cleverness of the dice drafting. That's what does it for me. But of course, your mileage may vary. So back to the dice, though. What, what, how I like it more than Castle Burgundy is in Castle Burgundy, you say, well, I got this three. How can I best use this three? In Pulsar, you're like, I have this three. How can I make this three a six? Because if I don't make <laughs> it a six this turn, bad stuff will happen. So how can I manipulate the dice in such a way or use the other two dice first in such a way that this last die will become the number that I really need? And so there's a... a fairly large puzzle that you can figure out if you, you know, go through the text and the tokens and, and manipulating the turn order and all of these things that, and different, uh, not transistors, different transmitters, transmitters that you have <laughs> at your disposal. All of these things. Very interesting. Can't wait to play it again. Pulsar 2849. Although let's be honest, Walker, you could call them whatever you wanted. They don't really transmit. They don't really transist. They can be whatever you want them to be. They really can. 
maybe you should do one of your patented Walker rethemings on on those. Start yeah. with those. Start with the transmitters, and then you can work your way out, and we can get there. I should read the book because I, I would be interested to know if they if they theme out why more technologies become available throughout the game because it's an interesting turn mechanism as well right as the turns advance more technologies become available and that that's an also a well cool it's, part a, it, as it's well. a patent system so presumably other eggheads are in just off in the corner inventing stuff and we're just there patenting it as corporations when they become available i don't know and the corporations are being corporation-y that's what they do i mean what else would gotcha. you expect them to do yeah, Walker, go. if you want your corporations stacked like chickens and your chickens stacked like corporations, that's a recipe for disappointment in your life. But fun while it lasts. <laughs> All right. I was just trying to give you some life advice. I get to play <laughs> Libertalia, Winds of Galecrest. This is a reprint of Libertalia from back in the day. This is by Stonemeyer Games and one of our favorite designers, Paolo Mori. You might be wondering, Walker, how is it that I have been able to play a copy of Libertalia, Winds of Galecrest so soon after it was released? This is because, Walker, I'm a very influential and high-powered individual, and as a consequence, I've Ooh. been gifted with a special talisman to represent my mastery over commerce. This is called a, I, you, you probably haven't seen one before. It's only for the elite. It's called a master card. And what I used this master card uh, to compel Stonemeyer Games to send me a copy. It's it's purely prestige. This is purely a flex, honestly. I was about to say, you flexed your, your master card and yeah. they had no choice but to... Pure flex. I mean, look, you, I called up Jamie and said, Jamie, my boy, I got this card that says you got to send me whatever I want. And he said, uh, okay, how did you get my number? It was a whole thing. Anyhow, Libertalia Winds of Galecrest. So I played with two which is a new mode available in the new version. The new version plays 1 to 6, as opposed to the old version playing 3 to 6. And this is a simultaneous action selection game with loads and loads of chaos. This feels a little bit like something Paolo Mori might have co-designed with Bruno Faiduti, to be frank. Uh, although he didn't. It's the kind of thing where there's lots of stuff going on and effects are happening and there might be consequences that you didn't or couldn't foresee and weird combinatorics going on and you started by trying to play this card and you figured something might happen and instead of that happening, seven other things happened and now suddenly you have no points and everyone's laughing at you and you say, stop laughing, mom, and they don't stop. But I have to say, uh, so I came in with a certain degree of misgivings because I'm not a huge fan of Libertalia. I think it's Paolo Mor- of Paolo Mori's major designs. It's by far my least favorite of his. I really kind of enjoyed my two-player game, and here's why. It was a very particular kind of enjoyment. I felt that in a two-player game, the universe of interactions was sufficiently constrained that I felt like I could understand what was happening. (laughs) It's not that everything was purely predictable. It's not that it was like a no-luck, abstract kind of maneuvering consequence. But when I played a card, I could figure out that there were roughly like three or four viable scenarios that might happen based on on what was going to occur. Not a universe of 50 different card effects that could happen because three of my neighbors played cards that I couldn't anticipate them playing. I was about to say, yeah, you're only going to get punished once. You play a card that can be punished and only one person can punish it for it, not everyone in a row. Yeah, we're decided that we're going to punish you and everyone just lines up their card and, and you're out. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. 
And it's also the case that I have to imagine that the rebalancing of the cards has done a little bit of work here. Now, I, I, I don't have a copy of the original. I haven't had a chance to sit down and compare all the original 30 cards with the new 40 cards and seeing which one's changed and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there has been some tweaking and redevelopment done, both by Paolo Mori and by Stegmeier and other people at Stonemeyer Games. And I have to imagine that that's part of the reason why I uh, appreciated some of the changes. Now, obviously, this is a Stonemeyer production, so the components are excellent. We've got bake-like tiles instead of cardboard chits. There, we've got 40 cards instead of 30 cards that were in the original. And we have new art. The new art is, is take or leave. Pirates don't do anything for me. Sky pirates don't do anything for me, which is the theme of the new version. Anthropomorphic animals, which definitely seems to be the Duragur thing of the past five years, don't do a whole much for me either. Although I, I, I confess, sometimes though, I should walk that back a little bit. I would start looking at some of the cards, particularly the general and the soldier. And it's like, is that, is that, is that soldier a bat? Is that, is that soldier a bat holding a musket? Would a bat be a good shot? So contained in the, in their own box, you can take or leave it. But how about compared to the old one, like the old dark gray brass brown awful <laughs> first edition? And like I haven't seen it, but it looks like it's a little lighter, fresher, more welcoming looking. Well, the previous one was edition. very much in a standard kind of brown wood and dark brass kind of piratey palette that is is pretty common. The new one is definitely eschewing that. It's sky pirate, so instead of where where there used to be dark wood and brass, now there's like sky blue everywhere. And a bat holding a musket. I'm obsessed with this bat holding a musket, Walker. I, I, I don't, I don't, this, 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 this bat soldier is, has crawled into my mind palace and won't leave. Anyway. Well, it's dovetailed in a little bit with regicide, right? The very cuteness and awesomeness that are the regicide cards, right? And so Ooh, it just, you know. Same broad idea, I guess, but I, I wouldn't want to go that far. Uh, there are a lot of characters when I play regicide that come up and I'm like, ah, trusty old Peanut, two of diamonds, way to lose me another game. I will always remember what Peanut Damn looks like. Damn you, Peanut. <laughs> Look, don't, let's not curse Peanut. Peanut does Peanut's best. Peanut's going to do what Peanut can do, but uh, anyway. So, the gameplay of Libertalia. <laughs> Moving on from the bat with a musket. With two players, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, You know, there's room for gambits and getting outsmarted, but again, things that happen that kind of make sense. Now, I understand why Libertalia is often played with higher player counts, because if you enjoy the gameplay, it's one of those games that can accommodate five to six players that will not take all night. The amount of time that the game takes doesn't really scale linearly with the number of players, so I understand why it frequently gets there, but for me, games like this aren't at their best at the high player counts. It's just too much chaos, too many interactions, things happen that you couldn't have foreseen, you play a high number card, you end up last, you play a low numbered card, mysteriously you end up first, and in, 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 in games of that ilk with all those kinds of artifacts, I, I, I like it when the universe is scaled down a little bit so my feeble mind can comprehend them. Libertalia, in a way, I see it played as a party game. You know, you play a card, something wild happens. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Sure, fine. But So it is that straight up great mechanism where everyone just chooses a card, puts it face down. Once everyone chooses, everyone flips up, right? Yes, the core gameplay has not changed. Okay, good. Well, I don't, I didn't, I don't even remember the core gameplay, so. Well, the, a lot of the details have changed about what the various cards do, but the core detail of 
everyone having the same hand of cards at the beginning of, of, of each round, which is really, really well done, and it was super clever in the original Libertalia as well. There's a universe of 40 cards, you randomly take six of them, and then everyone has the same six. So there's lots of variety game to game, but there's no luck of the draw in terms of which effects you got. Somebody gets the bat with a musket, everybody gets a bat with a musket. Somebody gets general monkey face, everyone gets general monkey face, just to pick two characters at random. And... Everyone chooses a character at the same time. They'll get flipped up. They trigger in a specific order. And then you draft treasure in a in reverse order. And sometimes you want to be early. Sometimes you want to be late, etc. That part is completely unchanged. And again, it, it accommodates large player counts. But when you get to the large player counts, it starts to feel like a kind of take that party-ish game. But I think there's a little bit too much rules grit. A little bit too much temptation to think that you can plan ahead for that to really work. Uh, I get the same impression for what it's worth when I play things like Category 5. It gives you the impression you might be able to control what's happening, but the moment you get to five, six players, all bets are off, as far as I'm concerned. My mind can't start contemplating the implications there. Other people maybe are smarter than me, but I see Libertalia at higher player counts as kind of a party game with too much rules grit. At lower player counts, which I'd never tried before, I was fascinated at the two-player experience about how it worked. So... Two-player is, is tough competition. I, yeah, I, I've already talked about Republic of Virtue. I'm going to talk about another two-player game later. I don't know that it would necessarily make the cut. But I will say that a game design that I was never terribly pleased with in the new edition at a two-player count, it was definitely the best Libertalia experience I've ever had, heads and shoulders above my previous playings. So if you kind of liked Libertalia, then you might want to give it a shot. If you really liked Libertalia, I highly recommend it. And if you were skeptical out of the higher player counts, maybe give it a shot at lower player counts if you can. So that's the new edition of Libertalia, subtitled Wings of Galecrest by Paolo Mori and Stonemaier Games, put out this year. All right, on the topic of party games, I think in my top five party games, Mark, Pitchers. And we played more precisely Pitchers Orange, the new expansion. And this is, of course, more cards. And now you have a couple pieces of felt and a bunch of clothespins as one of the the devices that you're using or a bunch of tiles that are either white on one side or some funky abstract design on the other that sometimes can link together or sometimes cannot. Ooh, cool. Can you make a creepy conspiracy board with your, with your pins and felt? Totally. Awesome. So what are you doing in pictures? Well, there's a grid of pictures, Mark, imagine out on the board and you draw tokens from the bag and it'll tell you like a grid like a six or d2 and that will be a secret to you and that will be your picture and now you're using either strings or felt and clothespins or rocks sticks and stones or four bit blocks like a three by three grid of color blocks to try to depict your picture and once once everyone's done you then start try to guess who's what their picture is and what picture they are in the grid and then it comes with great stories like this is a traffic jam and people would be angry so so i am funneling anger in my picture or you're just <laughs> not having any idea of what someone's drawn and and just going off on on silly artist rants i love pictures pictures is great i do remember the silly artist rants where somebody would make something that I thought or some segment of the table thought was utter genius because they made a very interesting connection with what limited tools they had available. The rest of the table is offering recommendations. I just don't see it. The person says true genius is never appreciated in its time. Then the rest of the table offers to kill them to make up for that. You know, it's the standard art, art, artist talk. 
But the fact that you're always playing with different sets of toys is really cool. And I don't like games where you draw, but games where you're given a more narrow task that's kind of sort of like drawing almost. I I, I do tend to enjoy pictures does that well. I really liked Starlink for what it's worth in the same way. It was a weird connect the dots experience rather than freeform drawing. Great leveling the playing field, a, a way to make it a sort of a gimmicky toy that makes the game more fun in its limitations. So, yeah, I, I, I'm i curious about these expansion elements. And Why is it called orange? I, that's a, Well, the felt is orange. So ah. the felt mark is that you get this circle and a square piece that's of it. felt. And that, yeah, and a bunch of clothespins. So you can sort of fold oh. the felt into what, okay. however you like and sort of hold it with clothespins or... Or make sort of like, you know, like a puppet or type thing or whatever you, whatever you want to do. Walker, Walker, you're forgetting our firm policy. No puppets. Uh, okay, no puppets. It's you, the one, you're the one who came up with it. Well, I, just for streaming, no puppets. We can have puppets whenever we like, just not on our stream. Okay. Speaking of stream, I haven't even, I haven't even said, but if you want to watch us play pictures, it's on stream. So is Pulsar2849. So is Reichbusters, which I'm going to talk about next. But that being said, moving on, pictures is published by PD Verlag and designed by Christian Score and Diella Score. That, their last name is not Score, but it is German and I cannot pronounce it, but it is close to that. So speaking of Reichbusters, I did not, I might have realized it, but maybe did not know. Uh, Louis made a comment of how it was sort of like bolt action. And sure enough, Jake Thornton, old GW designer, did all sorts of things. He also had a hand in, in bolt action, oh. designed Reichbusters. And uh, this is put out by Mythic Games, and it's sort of like an alternate history, occult, World War II, you're playing the Dirty Dozen type guys, you know, super trained international uh, heroes going in and doing missions. I've only played it a total of three times now. It's always been the first mission. This is something we're going to be doing every Sunday on stream. So if you want to watch a campaign from beginning to end, tune in on Sundays and we are playing Reichbusters. And it is sort of a basic action, move and shoot type uh, miniature skirmish, not, I want to say skirmish, but mission type game on a map. But, your basic actions are good enough. So it really is a, a, a card game because every character has their own set of cards and you're manipulating the actions or giving yourself bonus actions or modifying the dice you're rolling, all sorts of interesting stuff, searching rooms, getting weapons, upgrading those weapons, getting new skills, trying to puzzle out who should act next and how you can keep your the silence down. So huge bugbears in uh, games like this are line of sight rules and noise. Okay. These are two things that companies try to do and usually bogs the game down or they're done terribly. So line of sight is very easy in this game. It's much like Space Hulk all the way forward, north, south, east, west, straight lines. If you can see, you can see. And noise, I think they've done a fairly good job of of like just three stages of alertness of the enemies either they're they're normal uh, aware or suspicious it gets a little fiddly because you have to roll every time you do something so it's a little sort of grindy it's like okay noise check noise it's it sounds like a lot but it, it wasn't it's not that bad because the 
the board's fairly scarcely populated and the, and the most of your conflict is going to be from failing those noise checks and having patrols come in and, and mess up your, your plan. Because on our test game, we did things fairly safe or got lucky with our noise rolls. We did, we did the complete mission without the enemy even firing on us once and even did the, the secondary mission, like rescue the guy. And then we left and it was great. And then that one on stream, we got devastated because, you know, <laughs> the, the sergeant decided that he was going to search through the bookcases by apparently blowing them up with a grenade or something. And yeah, it just went all downhill from Interesting there. Interesting search technique. Yeah, yeah, it was it was fantastic. But anyway, I'm thoroughly enjoying Reichbusters. Can't wait to get deeper into, you know, when they you get the vril charged zombies coming at you and flamethrowers and all the craziness that I'm hoping is it was well play tested, I'm sure, right through to the end and <laughs> will work out great. Finally for me, got to play table battles. This is another design by Annabelle Holland at Hollandspiel put out in 2017. Table Battles is a filler-length dice game that seeks to model relatively static engagements that, as per the designer, aren't necessarily terribly well-represented in Hex Encounter games because if you're not going to be moving a lot, Hex Encounter games don't tend to be very engaging games. And one of the reasons why I was attracted to it is one of the scenarios in the base game of Table Battles, that's now had several expansions, is the Plains of Abraham. The Plains of Abraham was the final battle to decide the fate of Nouvelle-France, and it's how the English won Canada for themselves. And this was uh, a, a battle that was very well summarized in a brilliant article by Nick Oftermar, La Petite Histoire de Québec version anglaise, where he basically argued very compellingly that the entire history of colonial enterprise in Canada was the British and French desperately trying to pawn Canada off on the other side. And the British, in a bold move in order to lose the Seven Years' War in North America, decided to scale a cliff. And the French brilliantly outmaneuvered them by having their leader die during the battle. And thus the English were saddled with Canada. And the rest is, as we say, history. It's actually a really good article. I recommend it. You can find it in the Anglo Guide to Survival in Quebec, second volume. Anyhow, uh, so I started with the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, and it was... um, it was kind of stupid. It was kind of pointless and <laughs> really just a, you know, a dice game in the standard tradition of dice games of you roll your dice, you seem to have some obvious choices, and there you go. And this is because the scenario choice matters a whole heck of a lot in table battles because some of the scenarios make ample use of the reaction mechanism, and the reaction mechanism really makes the game because as you've devoted dice to various units, if they can react, they must react. And initially, that's one of those restrictions where you're reading the rulebook and you're thinking, huh, that could work really well or really badly. And the answer is most of the time it works really, really well. That restriction is really what determines the pacing and the choices of the game in terms of how you're going to push, when you're going to push, how you're going to seize tempo, how you're going to maintain tempo. Sometimes you do things precisely because you don't want your opponent to react. Sometimes you do things precisely because you do want them to react. And that part's really cool. And that part is not represented in several of the scenarios. Uh, my favorite scenario that we played was Malplaqué, which had a number of interesting bits of deciding where to push and how to push, as opposed to Planes of Abraham, where there aren't really any choices. You just put the dice where they show up, and that's it. That's the story of the game. And then there are some other scenarios, like Bosworth, that are also kind of weird, 
where you don't really have a whole heck of a lot of choice, but there's an interesting cavalry skirmish over off to the side, layered on top of what would be a relatively more standard engagement. So suffice to say, the scenarios ranged all the way to why am I doing this, to this is actually kind of interesting. If the quality of scenario were more consistent, if it were more consistently designed around those cool bits of tempo that are baked into the system, then I respect the fact that as a historical war game, Amabel Holland doesn't want to shove in that element in a battle where she feels it's inappropriate or not particularly historically redolent. That's okay, that's fine, but I wish that the choice of battle to model had been more driven by the idea of what can this system do well, rather than what can this system capture at all. Because, yes, it's good at capturing static engagements, but it doesn't necessarily follow that it it can capture all those engagements in an engaging, entertaining way. Now, there are a whole bunch of expansions. Uh, initially, after playing a couple of early ones, like Malplaqué, like Bosworth, I was perhaps interested in seeing how it does some of the more complicated scenarios. Apparently, there's a bunch of battles from the era of Alexander the Great, including the Wars of the Diadochi. I love the, the Wars of the Diadochi. Huge, huge fan. But... Honestly, after playing about half a dozen times now, I think the scenario design is sufficiently uneven that I'm not particularly keen to go deeper into the system as manifested in the historical version. There is, however, a dinosaur version of Dinosaur Table Battles, and as Amabel Holland notes, this necessarily means that the previous version of Table Battles should probably be called Human Table Battles. And in the Dinosaur version of Table Battles, you actually draft your dinos before you actually go fight, so it's a sort of create-your-own-scenario system, which makes me curious... Sometimes, create-your-own-scenario systems are precisely the kind of thing you want to do when the scenario design is uneven. QV my enthusiasm for Combat Commander. Some of the scenarios in Combat Commander aren't so great, but it's got such a brilliant random scenario generator that I'm happy to do that. Dinosaur table battles might just be what I'm looking for, but then again, I'm a little bit leery. So I am going to try to give dinosaur table battles a shot if I have the opportunity. And if there were the context of someone I trusted being able to recommend certain engagements in table battles, I'd happily do that. But by and large, I found table battles to be an interesting design puzzle and an interesting example of very, very clever mechanistic construction but not necessarily always put out to its best advantage. And that was my experience with table battles. And lastly, for me, Mark, when you have a crowdfunding project, like you, you, you pledge your money, it's like it's a whole sort of experience, right? You're watching the updates, you're waiting for the shipping to come, and you've waited this time, and, the, and something that you've ordered finally arrives, and you get to play it. There's this sort of satisfaction that you get. So we got to play Ascension Tactics miniature deck-building game. So Walker? This is designed, but yes, Walker. yes, Mark. Walker. First of all, yes, <laughs> it's not your game. Shut up. Secondly, <laughs> I only late pledged, and so I actually got the best version. I because I actually don't like that long cycle of anticipation. I just like the version where I throw money at them, I completely forget about it, and then miraculously some gift shows up later. I should really turn off Kickstarter notifications and GameFound updates as a consequence so as to maximize it. Because my late pledge experience, this has been great. Because maybe six months later, I figure, oh, what's the progress of this of this project? I go check. It's like, oh, it's never coming. Okay, fine. And then I remember again a year later. And I go check and say, oh, maybe it'll be on a boat someday, sometime in the next few months. Okay, whatever. As opposed to these constant grinding updates that are all about, like, here's the spotlight of this other thing you'll only get to play with in a year. Also, number one, it's my game. Shut up. But having said that, please go on. The lies. Anyway, Ascension Tactics Miniature Deck Building Game. So Ascension came out 
years and years ago, sort of like a, a reply to Dominion, another type of deck building game where it was a a line of cards that everyone sort of uh, bought from and then it got replaced immediately instead of the traditional, you know, standard, all these decks on the table. And then there was a whole bunch of different iterations. They did sort of a Shadow Rift kind of version as well, all sorts of different ways to play Ascension. Now, this one incorporates miniatures, and the same designer that did World of Warcraft miniature game worked on this, and the essential part of this is the way to get victory points. There's these locations on the board, and if you have the most miniatures around it, you're going to get points. So you're fighting over these victory point areas, you are drafting cards as you normally would in Ascension, you're spending a new kind of command points to to uh, summon these uh, miniatures onto the board and they attack each other and you fight. I, I really enjoyed my first playing. I am so looking forward to playing it more. There's a cooperative version as well, where you're going to fight against the game. I guess it's sort of like an offshoot off of the solo version. Very interesting. There's like different, now there's like two different ways you can go like normal, in normal deck builders, you try to build like a gold engine so you can buy more cards. But in this, you can also build a command engine because some monsters will come up in the deck like they do in Ascension and you buy these monsters with command points. And now you can populate the board with these giant monsters and attack with them. You really need to get it. I think you need to get it in your head that this is a fast game because there are these uh, like items that you can give to your uh, heroes or leaders or miniatures that you're going to be fighting with. And they're so overpowered that it's ridiculous, but I think the game goes so quickly that it doesn't really matter. It's like, I'm, I'm okay. I have this super overpowered character. He crushes him, but then on your turn, you gang up with everybody and kill him. And now he's off the board. Now you have to summon him again and he doesn't have those items anymore. And it's this back and forth looking forward to trying it again. And that is Ascension Tactics miniatures, deck building game, area majority, dice roller. There's no dice. There's no dice. You're very bad at subtitles, Walker. And those are the games we played last week. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So speaking of long names, arcs, collapse, and conflict in the Elysium sector. I mean, in the void. <laughs> this is new, the new Cole Whirly game, Mark, by Leader Games. It's going to be a science fiction campaign game with the same art. It looks very interesting. That's all the information I've got. Science fiction campaign by Cole Worley. I talked about this a while ago. The The hook that's got me appealed is you can play an entire campaign in one sitting. The arcs, the chapters are 20 to 30 minutes each. The claim is, we'll see whether that manifests. And so you can play out an entire campaign at once. And you can do that over and over and over again. If that promise manifests, I'm definitely down. Alert, alert. We have David Thompson, Newswalker. This is very important. Ooh. Stop the presses. Now, on the one hand, this is very important because it's David Thompson news. On the other hand, I feel like we shouldn't make a big deal out of it because I don't know how David Thompson works. I don't know when he sleeps, but he seems to be kind of coming out with releases all the time. When 2020 happened, and it was very much the year of David Thompson, and he released Undaunted, and he released For What Remains, and he released Castle Itter, and he released a whole bunch of other stuff around at the same time, and his explanation was, why well, this is just how it shook out. I designed some of these a long time ago. This is just publication history. Well, I'm sorry. If you keep churning out games of this quality, year after year. I think the issue is you, not publication schedules, sir. Anyway, he is going to be putting out a game designed in conjunction with Jeff Engelstein, himself a very venerable and interesting designer, called Jung Ha. This is a solo game about the voyages of the aforementioned Jung Ha, and there's no publication date yet. This is all very preliminary. I'm just very excited about any and all David Thompson news. I'm interested. Next up is a game... I'm only mentioning because it's Avatar The Last Airbender, Fire Nation Rising. And we've talked about Avatar The Last Airbender. But Mark, this is a whole series of games that I heard of, but never knew they were connected. And I'm sure you haven't heard of either because it's they're very uninteresting. It's the <laughs> Rising series. So there is uh, Batman Who Laughs Rising, Harry Potter Death Eaters Rising, SpongeBob SquarePants Plankton Rising... <laughs> And what was the other? There's another, there's the Thanos, Thanos rising one. So oh, there's all sure. these rising games and they all use the same sort of mechanism and look. So this one is just going to be another one in that line of Avatar, the last airbender, sort of all the same mechanics, but they do, apparently they do a slightly different angle to work in the theme. So, okay. There is going to be a board game adaptation of Dead by Daylight designed by Brad Talton of Level 99 Games, published by Level 99 Games. Uh, I know a number of people who are deep into Dead by Daylight. Josephus plays Dead by Daylight all the time. It's a fascinating property in that it's kind of a bucket for all manner of other properties. Like almost any horror franchise you can name, video game or movie, has had its tendrils in Dead by Daylight at some point. It is a 1v-all 
killer trying to hunt down victims thing, which is also having a bit of a moment. You know, think about designs like Final Girl and Don't Look Back, horror, slasher kind of movies in board game form are very much de rigueur. Normally, I wouldn't give this a second look, but number one, uh, video game adaptations in board game form, some of them are actually good. It's a very strange place to be. And number two, I really like Brad Dalton's design work. I think he's a fascinating designer. Now, the board is hideous, uh, which is strange, because uh, if you're going to be doing a, a sort of a, a licensed adaptation of a video game, you want to make the components pop. That's going to be one of the primary appeals. Uh, but uh, who's to say? Like, 1v all is a very, very difficult design space, but I'm curious to see what Brad Talton does with it. And so that is going to be Dead by Daylight by Brad Talton. It's going to be released later this year. My son and I played that for quite a bit, and it led to you know quite a few fun stories, but in the end was just a little too... I tried, I, tri- I tried playing it, uh, but my misgiving was I couldn't get behind a game where substantial portions of it involved people screaming in agony at the top of their lungs. Yeah, as, as the one you'd grab people and you'd bring them into your your murder cottage and sure. hang them on hooks. Yeah, yeah. It was not, it was not a, it was not a, a, a children's game for it's, sure. It's not that I'm necessarily squeamish. It's just, it's the prolonged screams of agony. Uh, that was apparently the line I didn't want to cross. So Ravensburger's putting, has put out a wizard of the Oz adventure book game. And I'm only talking about this one because I read it at one part and it said it also includes singing challenges based on songs from the film. Oh my goodness. Now, doesn't that sound as though that you get to sing the songs or something about that? Yes. Mark, doesn't it sound like... No, that is not what you do. I looked oh. into it just to see, and that is, in fact, not what you get to do. It's just a sideboard that says, here's the singing challenges, and lists some cards that you have to play in order to do the singing challenge. Nothing to oh do my. with the actual song itself. Kind of rough in that way. Kind of rough in other ways that I that I saw when I looked into a little bit more, just because the designer is not listed in the board game geek uh, site and they really should say reiner knizia because if you look a little closely at it it's almost exactly like lord of the rings where every chapter (laughs) is a different board much like lord of the rings they all have tracks that you're moving your characters along to get bonuses and you're playing cards to move along these tracks very similar i'll let other people decide what they think That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature game, which is Rift Force. Rift Force was designed by Carlo Bortoloni and published by One More Time Games and Capstone Games in 2021. It is a two-player card battler type thing, very much in the Euro tradition. This is the kind of thing that several years ago might well have been published by Cosmos in the Cosmos two-player square box line. Uh, not only because it is very much in that design philosophy, but also because it is published in the exact same size and shape of box. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Rift Force? So in Rift Force, you have two very important decisions to make when it's your turn. You're either A, going to complain about the terrible guilds you chose at the beginning of the, at the, beginning of the game, or B, you're going to complain about how overpowered your opponent's elementals are. <laughs> or both. Rift Force. Or both. <laughs> <laughs> but but really there is there is 10 different elementals you can choose from they create interesting combinations there are tough choices are you going to 
uh, cause damage? Are you going to play elementals to stop your opponent from scoring? Or are you going to refresh your hand because you have no cards left and maybe score some points? There's lots of things going on in such a small, I don't want to say basic, but easy to teach, easy to learn, two-player battler. So two-player battlers can very much be done in the Euro tradition. Uh Perhaps the best example of this, I think, is Blue Moon, which is one of my all-time favorite games and probably my favorite two-player game all told. But it is very much a an auction game dressed up as a card battler. Rift Force, to me, simultaneously feels very much in the Euro tradition, but it also feels more like a card battler in the tradition of something along the lines of Magic the Gathering, in that specifically, you are issuing damage to specific cards and you're trying to get points for kills. There are other ways to get points, we'll talk about that later, and that's one of my favorite parts of the game, actually. But it it nonetheless manages to straddle this divide, I think, in a very, very pleasing way. And one of the things that I want to stress about Rift Force is that, you know, you talked about the complaints about how you always pick the bad ones and your opponent always picks the good ones. I can definitely attest that that's true. I have never won a game of Rift Force... I have never seen me being able to pull off combos, but I always see my opponent able to pull off clever combos. And this, to me, demonstrates that there's actually some good clever design here. Not that I was in doubt, but when you can be reliably trounced, when someone can just generally be terrible at a game, that always fascinates me because it demonstrates that however much luck of the draw there might happen to be, and I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot, there's a lot of skill and cleverness going on in terms of setting yourself up well for success in a game of Rift Force. And it is a skill I do not have. And I think it starts right off from, right off at the beginning of, of uh, drafting these elementals. So two, there's ten, two leave the game right off the beginning, you get one at random, and you get to draft the other three. And there are different way, there are definitely ways that they interact with each other. Some will damage the ones at the front, some will damage the ones at the back, and when you team those together, they do a great job. Like, the Earth Elementals will damage everyone in a line. Now, suddenly, those units that only do one damage to the front, but if someone's wounded at the back, now do a tremendous amount of damage, because normally you can't wound the people at the back. Those two work together great. Or Earth or plants that pull guys around off the lanes, or, or air elementals that you can actually move, because normally once you're locked into a lane, you don't get to move around, but these guys get to move anywhere they want and do sort of like a spread of damage. They're fantastic for finishing units off, so you're not wasting this extra damage. And that even goes down to the order in which you energize these cards. It's like I want to do my big damage and then finish them off with the air or finish off wounded ones at the beginning and then hit the new guys, the fresher guys, now that you've revealed them with the bigger damage. Lots going on. You just touched on a whole bunch of stuff. One, uh, let, let's let's do them. talk about them in order. One thing that I actually quite like is something you touched on with respect to the movement of the cards. Broadly speaking, when you play a card, it's going to sit there. There is no default move action. There's no way that you can take an action to move them by, by yourself. Moving only happens as a consequence of a special kind of activation. You know, shadow units get to move as they want to. Air units get to move. Water units must move to an adjacent place. Plant units can drag people around. But that's about it. The rest of the time, you play something, it's going to stick there. And that, I think, is one of the areas in which you're able to differentiate units and really open the, the, the space up for clever play. Because if you're able to 
deal with the static nature of your placements while exploiting minimal move actions, that is a great way to dominate the the lanes. And it's one of the many ways in which I'm not good at Rift Force. I'm not going to bring it all back to my failure at this game, by the way. I'm not actually hung up on it. I'm just saying, I know that there's cleverness here because I've seen it deployed against me. <laughs> Yeah, it really feels as though you have to look at your hand. You're drawing seven cards, and you need to see what you can do for the next few turns. Because when it is your turn, you're either playing all the elementals of one type or all the elementals of a certain number. So I'm either going to play three earth elementals or I'm going to play three cards of the number five. So you have to look at your hand and say, well, if I play three earth elementals am I going to have any earth elementals left to activate them? Or if I play three number sevens, am I going to have any sevens left to activate them? And you sort of have to plan what you're going to do based on those things, because you can't just start throwing guys out and thinking something's going to happen. And that touches on the hand management element. As longtime listeners of the show know, I love hand management, and I think the way that Rift Force does it is really clever, because as you say, it's not enough just to deploy them. You have to have a vision about how and when they're going to be activated. So you look at your hand, figure out, okay, I can deploy these and then activate them with these other cards, or maybe I just need to deploy them and then hope I draw something, which is a legitimate tactic. Sometimes you can hope to, to, to luck into a certain draw. And the suited cards are very limited in scope. Everything's either a five, a six, or a seven. So it's not like there's a tremendous luck of the draw going on. And as you say, you can either play or activate based on either number or elemental. And so being able to think laterally in that way, just being able to visualize the cards as both the combination of their number value and of their suited value in terms of activating them is great. Can we talk about the drawing element in Rift Force, which I think is so cool? And we sure can. So there are all these lanes, and when you draw, normally in a game like this, drawing is just giving up tempo. And sometimes, indeed, when you're playing Rift Force, drawing is just giving up tempo. But when you draw cards, you will score a point for every lane where you are unopposed. And that, I think, is a key element of pressure. I love games where just drawing or passing the turn is an aggressive act. Because if your opponent is concentrated in one place, or if they're behind the eight ball, or even if they're just massacring you in a couple of, of specific lanes, you can just take the risk and spread out and try to draw. Now, you can't do it turn after turn. In order to draw, you have to be under your hand limit. But those games where you're able to draw, even though you're at six out of your seven cards and score some points out of the progress, it's very satisfying. Yeah, because there's two ways you can score points. Eliminating the other player's elementals or, like you said, being scoring when there's unopposed lanes. And so making that choice is like, well, I could kill one or maybe none, or there's two lanes that I'm dominating right now, so I'm just going to keep hitting this draw cards action until they put cards in there. And there's there's a strategy to that as well. There's putting heavy hitters in lanes and, and making them hesitant to put cards in there or stacking a bunch of cards in lanes and making them hesitant to put cards back in there. Yes, because when you deploy, you can either deploy them all to the same lane or into adjacent lanes. Again, a lot of Rift Force is about limiting your available movement. You can't just put them down wherever you like just in the same way that you can't move them wherever you like. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how... What a interesting mechanism that is just you know because the difference between because there's only five lanes so you think well three you know adjacent is not that big a deal but it makes huge restriction. a difference yeah i agree yeah huge restriction and is makes play very interesting so i want to touch on some of the special abilities that you mentioned earlier on uh close to the intro because this is actually one of my mild criticisms because 
Again, Rift Force is very much in the Eurosphere. It gets a lot of mileage out of a very slight rule set. Everything is very understandable, despite the fact that a lot of it is about combos and synergies. One of the things that I don't like is, number one, there's only one power that triggers off of card placement. The Earth Elementals, when you put down an Earth Elemental, they do one damage to everything in that lane. That is the only power that does damage, or does anything even, as you play the card. I don't object to the power necessarily, it's just a weird bit of asymmetry, and I'm hoping it's the kind of thing that they're going to explore a little bit more in the expansion. Because it's, it's, it's just a little bit of an odd power out, for that reason. Similarly, most of the time when you do damage, you do damage to the first character that is opposing you in the lane. Sometimes, though, in rare instances, you can do damage to any of them, or you mentioned one power that specifically damages the last in the given lane. And that actually is one of those areas that frequently trips people up, and it kind of slows the game down. You say, okay, I'm doing two damage over here. It's like, oh, wait, is that the one that does damage to the first or the last? And you have to keep going back over. Again, if that's a kind of complication they want to introduce into the system, I wish it had been explored a little bit more in a little bit more robust way. As it is, those two elements, I think, are potentially interesting areas of elaboration, but underused. So as a result, they feel more like exceptions than full-fledged addition to the power space. I would like to stress, this is a relatively minor quibble. It's true. And the fact that it's so ripe for expansions, right? It's easy just to add more elementals, more factions, slightly different abilities. They've already announced an expansion, which I'll talk about later, but super easy to add more stuff. I was was interested to know if you thought this was a big deal or the way they did because with two player battlers like this, there's usually always a first player uh, problem or a end of game problem, and I thought they did a, a a good way to fix this. the The second player gets a free unit out, and you're always playing equal turns because it's the first person to 12 and then if it's uneven turns then you play till even turns so it gives that person one more chance to either you know tie it up or get more points no i agree i think they've done a good job on both instances and one thing i'd just like to stress because you keep quite rightly situating in the realm of two-player card battlers the thing that many card battler games have been trying to do sometimes to varying degrees of success is give you some of the sense of satisfaction of deck construction of the you know the, the the old days of pouring over your deck and carefully crafting your list and having full control over everything that comes up, but that requires a lot of upfront investment and a certain degree of buy-in, so that new players can often be intimidated away from trying. At the other end, you have card games that seek to give you that kind of experience, but there's no customization whatsoever. Again, Blue Moon is an example of this, and then there's the sort of hybrid approach. And that's one of the reasons why I really like Sakura Arms. I've talked about Sakura Arms a lot. There is a level of drafting and then go build your deck, but the building of your deck is sufficiently constrained that new players can do it, and you can do it in about three to five minutes, so you're right away in getting into playing the game. Rift Force does the exact same thing. At the start of the game, there's the draft of the suits you're going to play. You get one at random at the, at the top, and then you draft three more, and so you get that level of trying new things, of trying variety, of trying to exploit combos, feeling like the combo is one that you have discovered rather than necessarily having been handed to you. But at the same time, it's approachable for new players. It's understandable by new players. And you don't have to sit down and min-max before the game starts. Yeah, that's what one of my points was. It's super easy to set up. The setup is even part of the game. The teardown is a little 
it's a little more than that because now you're separating all the cards, but it's really not that much. Super minutes, fast, yeah. easy to play. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much in the realm, as I said, of the two-player Cosmos games. Blue Moon was in the two-player series. Jambo, Lost Cities, Targi, even Lord of the Rings The Confrontation was originally published under this line. So really, really venerable line that's kind of out of favor now. Uh, but the Spiel für Zwei had a lot of great hits. And as I say, it is high praise to say that Rift Force feels very much like it could fit in this venerable tradition. This is also in Alpha on Board Game Arena, so people are going to be able to try it very soon. I'm looking forward to that, yeah. There's an expansion coming out. It says, go beyond the Rift. Discover a new plane of possibilities, Rift Force Beyond. So, unfortunately, they're going away from where I want them to go with just, you know, more elementals. There are, it looks though there are going to be more elementals, but the fact that they're making this a three or four player game, eh, and a little bit of co-op there, eh, we'll see. It'd be nice for them just to keep it what it is, but you never know. It might play very well. And in keeping with federal, provincial, and international law, it will have a solo mode. It does have a solo mode. I don't know. Have we ever seen a card battler that goes from two-player to multiplayer ever do that well? Question nope. mark. I am anticipating <laughs> the multiplayer version to work out the same way that other excellent two-player games have gone multiplayer in the past. You have a couple of teams and you kind of split up the responsibilities and it feels like a little bit of a beefed up two player game where you're splitting the responsibilities of each of the player. I also have no idea what the solo mode is going to be, but what can I say? I'm, I'm happy that it's going to include new elementals. I agree with you. I would have been happier if it would just would have had more, but this is a careful balancing act and we're already in a, a, a pretty big universe of combinatorics. And so even adding a small number of factions gives you a lot more possibilities, I feel. Yeah, there's more, and there's even more that I want to, you know, try to get out of this. There's a faction that heals cards and all sorts of different stuff. Looking forward to trying more combos. I have seen every faction used very cleverly, usually by my opponent, and every faction used very clumsily, usually by me. And that really gives me optimism that Rift Force is going to have legs uh, for years into the future. Again, two-player card battlers is, is a genre of game that I really, really enjoy when done well. And I think that Rift Force really hits on that sweet spot of customization without pre-building. And that's exactly what I'm looking for. Can't wait to play again. Mark, seeing as we have separate uh, experiences with Rift Force, I'm finally looking forward to having a victory against you. That would be great. <laughs> well, with that... Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on SoWrongGames.com. All our contact information is there. We will read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. For more public discussion, we are on Facebook. You can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is Guild Number 3236. You can find us on Patreon, Twitch, and we would love to hear from you. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.